I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. I think fundamentally, we need an accounting system that reflects that grid emissions is dependent on both time and location, and that every unit of electricity does not have the same emissions impact. More than 90% of Fortune 500 companies report their emissions under the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, or GHGP, which supplies the world's most widely used greenhouse gas accounting standards. But despite significant advances in data analytics around emissions measurement, it's been nearly a decade since the GHGP was last updated. Thankfully, the NGOs that manage the GHGP recently kicked off the update process, soliciting feedback from stakeholders across the spectrum. So in this episode, HACI strategic advisor Brendan Heron and I speak with Faraz Ahmed, head of Net Zero Grid for Amazon. Faraz dives deep into the efforts of the Missions First Partnership, a consortium of companies working together to reduce their emissions with the most impactful clean energy projects, and to move away from megawatt-hour matching and toward integration of an emissions-based framework into the GHGP. Faraz also discusses how underserved regions, both across the globe and within the U.S. itself, could economically benefit from an emissions-first approach to the energy transition. Faraz, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. Likewise, Chad. It's a pleasure to be here. Faraz, you've spent just about your entire career in energy and our climate. Tell us about your primary impetus for focusing your career in this space. You're right. I have spent nearly all of my career. I grew up in Northern England, and so my very first job was at a nuclear reprocessing facility. It was the main employment in the area. So it's kind of been with me for a long time. I've always been aware of energy in that way. Um, and fundamentally, I wanted to work on a priority that was important to society. And energy is just one of those priorities that just also aligns with my technical and commercial interests. And the key realization for me was that you just can't have prosperity without energy. It really is the basis for human civilization. So I've been working in energy for almost 17 years now. And it's just amazing to me how it has changed during that time from a topic that no one really talked about really when I graduated to now something that's very much top of the societal and political agenda. What did you do for the nuclear reprocessing facility as your first job? Yeah, so my first job, essentially, just so everyone we may know, is that there is a process called vitrification, which is where you take the nuclear waste and you mix it with glass that's then stored in cast steel uh, drums and goes hundreds of meters deep around. And by background, uh, I studied electrical electronic engineering. And so essentially... They had mechanical cogs, if you could believe it. So these are things that are over 50 years old that essentially just needed to, be, needed to be replaced with electronic systems. And so that was my role, essentially, was to do that upgrade and commission that. Wow, that's fascinating. But you also did spend a number of years on the fossil side of the industry with GE and Baker Hughes, I believe. Tell us more about that experience and how it eventually informed your entry or re-entry into renewables. Yeah. So most of my career has been focused on power, but you're right, I did spend about five years in the oil and gas business, you know, subsea, LNG, and natural gas. And so I had the fortune of traveling around the world. On reflection, I think there were a few things that really stood out for me from that experience. The first is really around energy access. And so I traveled to many regions of the world, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia. And for most people, really, energy is not really a choice, right? They need energy to live. And just to set that global context, right, there's 800 million people around the world approximately without access to electricity today. 
And there's about another billion people around the world now who have access to electricity, but not the amount that they need. So they may have brownouts for four, six, eight hours a day. So that's 1.8 billion people around the world now who lack the electricity that they need. And when I talk to investors around the world, I ask them around why there's a lack of investment in these locations. And it fundamentally comes down to the fact of the risk reward is just not skewed correctly in their view as well, as well as also perhaps some concerns around the legal and other frameworks. So for those people in those locations who are developing coal plants or developing natural gas fields, et cetera, it really just is a matter of survival and they have to try and develop these resources to develop their civilization in the area. The second aspect as well, which I think is really relevant to this energy transition, is regarding human capital. And we should not estimate the need for talent. There's going to be a need to essentially refocus the skilled workforce that we have into the clean tech, climate tech sector. And the oil and gas sector has a lot of technical and project management and other relevant capability as well. I used to work in offshore drilling. And I remember that if you look at the challenges that they're facing, they're drilling 20,000 feet down beneath the ocean, hitting the seafloor at extreme temperatures, extreme pressures. And that's similar to the height at which a plane flies above the ground and they're drilling right at one meter by one meter square, right? So incredible technical precision. And that's the kind of talent and capability that we need now to really accelerate the energy transition. And thirdly, I think from that experience as well, the other aspect that really stood out for me was around how it's not just change, but it's the rate of change that matters. Right? I was involved in digitization and on implementing satellite monitoring for offshore oil rigs after the BP Macondo disaster, where we needed to get better data and monitoring on these critical assets. And while often there was extreme or very high level sponsorship from sea level and other executives as well, when it actually came to the implementation, it was actually very difficult and very slow as well, because there's a certain process, a certain culture around do things that may be very applicable in certain oil and gas context, but not perhaps if it's just a more simple electronic or software upgrade as well. Uh, and so that rate of change really stuck out to me as something that I felt that that rate of innovation was really the issue. Uh, and that's something that's also stuck with me from that experience. Okay, well, as we try to expand energy access while at the same time accelerating the rate of decarbonization across the world, and very important aspect and driving uh, factor in this is what's called the greenhouse gas protocol. Now, many folks may not know much about it. So could you talk to us a little about the greenhouse gas protocol or GHGP? Why was it established and what impact has it had with regard to corporate procurement of renewables? Yeah, so the greenhouse gas protocol is essentially a guidance that governs the way how many corporates report the emissions footprint. And it's divided into scope one, scope two, scope three, which we can also discuss and, and define as well. And essentially, as sustainability has risen up the agenda, it's very much become the resource that regulators and other entities go to to ensure that there's a standardization or harmonization of reporting. And something quite significant happened over the past 10 years or so, whereas if you look before 2015, the amount of corporate renewables was actually very small, so less than a gigawatt cumulatively. And since 2015, there's essentially been just an explosion in demand. So now, when you look at Bloomberg data in 2021, there was over 31 gigawatts of corporate renewable procurement globally that occurred. And there may be other things as well that, that happened. Obviously, renewables has become much more cost competitive. One of the things that has 
I think contributed to that is around where in 2015 there was an update to the protocol where this introduction of what's called a market-based method where corporates could actually use their procurement as a way to reduce their scope two emissions. And overall, I think I would just summarize and say it's just been a huge success story. Right? We want more renewables added to the grid. I've heard from sources uh, that I think from CBA that over 35% or 30% or so of renewables now being added to the US grid is a direct consequence of corporate offtake. So it has most definitely been a huge success story. So scope two, which is where the corporations measure their own electric usage has clearly been a success as you just stated. But there's also some problems with it. Maybe you could explain a little bit about what the problems are with scope two. Yes, let me try and expand on that. I think one of the key developments is that we've got better grid emissions data. I think the protocol can improve because now we can actually better measure emissions and that's the objective here. Under the current guidance, a mega hour of renewable electricity counts towards reducing a mega hour of load in the same market of an organization's electricity consumption, regardless of the time or makeup of the grid where the renewable electricity was generated. Therefore, there isn't a common way to account for where new renewable energy projects will have the greatest impact. If, on the other hand, we measure emissions data, we can account for the emissions that are displaced by renewable electricity generation and create more of an incentive to invest in emission reduction measures where they are most acutely needed. Without this more granular data, organizations will tend to procure renewable electricity in areas where it's easy to transact. And that results in oversaturation of renewables in certain markets, which reduces the amount of avoided emissions and causes underinvestment in markets that most acutely need those renewables. Fundamentally, we need an accounting system that reflects that grid emissions are dependent on both time and location and that every unit of electricity does not have the same emissions impact. So today we're measuring emissions reductions by the megawatt hours. So you're trading off a megawatt hour renewables versus a megawatt hour of conventional power usage. And what you're saying would work better would be to move to a emissions-based version so that we're measuring the emissions of the conventional power and the emissions reduction of the renewables and, and matching those up. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's essentially a new dimension. I think the best way to describe this is just with a couple of examples. Going back to my point of how time and location matter, under the current protocol, a business that consumes electricity in Wyoming can sign a PPA, a power purchase agreement, in Texas to match the electricity consumption. If that volume of electricity procured in Texas equals the amount consumed in Wyoming, then they are assumed to have the same emissions impact. Now that the data landscape has matured, we now have data showing that in reality, there are significant differences in emission intensity of the grids between these geographies. And secondly, in terms of time, as an example, under the current protocol, a business that consumes the majority of the electricity during the day can report a market-based emissions total of zero by purchasing an equal volume of renewable electricity from a local wind project in the same market that produces its electricity at night. So really, the emissions impact of the consumption and generation differ throughout the day, even in the same market, and therefore that should be accounted separately. So to your point, Brendan, right, if you think of our dimensions, you've got dollars, megawatt hours. And so by having a third dimension of emissions now and understanding uh, and measuring the emissions impact of that consumption and the procured generation, we're having a better understanding of the impact that we're having. And also to summarize, not every megawatt hour is equal, right? Right. They have different emissionality or emissions profiles. 
And to address this issue, Amazon, Hassey, a number of other leading corporates have formed what's called the Emissions First Partnership. Faraz, you were instrumental in bringing this partnership together. Can you talk to us about what it's trying to achieve? Absolutely. So first, just an overview of the Emissions First Partnership. It's really a coalition of corporates who are really advocating for an emissions-based framework for Scope 2. And it's specifically from organizations who are actively involved in this, right? who are actually practitioners and are active in the market there and who understand the challenges related to it. And the objectives really are to make sure that we want to give electricity users and stakeholders the most accurate view of the emissions impact of electricity. And this, in turn, should allow electricity users to make really clear, high-impact, demand-side emission reduction decisions, whether that's be how to operate and clean the grids, investing in energy efficiency, load shifting, or optimizing the charging of EV fleets. And that should be a scalable framework that's flexible enough and future-proof enough that can work for any size company across geographies, across any type of technology as well. Secondly is also, we want to make sure we give clean energy buyers the best possible data to maximize the emissions reductions impact of their procurement. So prioritizing action where and when it matters most and making sure that every dollar spent is having the maximum impact. And thirdly, we want to give stakeholders confidence that emission reduction claims made by organizations are really accurate and impactful. And that will incentivize a much wider range of corporate actions across not just procurement, but also load management and other methods to effectively address emissions. So those goals sound like the right goals. How do we make the changes that are necessary in order to move from the current system today to a better system? Right. So this is how do we actually make it happen? And that's important. I think, first of all, we need to ensure this consistency in methodology, right? And we can talk a little bit around some of the metrics and data to do that. But one of the principles that I think about as well is that we don't want to constrain ourselves with the data that we have today. We want to define the outcome they want to achieve and then fill in the gaps that we need to achieve that outcome. And I think data is definitely one enabler for that. But I think the first aspect is making sure that we can actually begin to measure the marginal emission rates by time and location for every good in the world. And we can get there in stages as well. We might first of all just want to make sure we cover geographical coverage and at least do it on a countrywide level. Uh, I know the UN and others publish marginal emissions factors on an annual basis. We want to make sure that multiple data source providers are using the same methodology, right? So there is an inconsistency that way. And we want to ensure that we're not penalizing buyers as well who've done actions in the past as we migrate to an emissions-based framework as well. So I think there's a multiple factors, Brendan. I also do think that we need to get a wider ecosystem involved, grid operators being one, and they know exactly what plant is on the margin, what's marginal plant is that's serving that load, and should be able to give feedback on how we can actually have emission signals in the same way as we have price signals in power markets. And how do we implement this change? Because people have made set goals today based on kind of an average annual and taking advantage of the lowest cost, for example, renewable, not necessarily the one that best matches their emissions. So how do we in the future make a transition so that corporations are seen as actually doing the right thing and making progress as opposed to just trying to hit an old goal that maybe is outdated? Yeah, I think maybe it's first worthwhile just to take a step back and just to, for the benefit of the listeners, just try to elaborate some of those definitions on kind of average and marginal and why that's useful in this framework. So think about it this way. If you were 
wanting to report your historical emissions for your home, you know, your average emissions rate is just simply saying, what is the total emissions and the total amount of power consumed on the grid? And there's a ratio of that. And so you can multiply that by a, your particular electricity consumption and come up with an average emissions figure. It's very useful for historical reporting. The marginal construct is, is, more, is really very relevant for when you're making a decision or intervention. So think about a case study where you're about to charge your electric vehicle, right? And at any point in time, when you charge your electric vehicle, there's an extra load, extra consumption put on the grid. And an extra plant on the grid has to essentially serve that. And that could be a gas plant ramping up to meet that load. So for every you know, unit or mega hour of electricity that we're incrementally adding, there's an incremental amount of essentially emissions being created, right? And so that's therefore the marginal signal, right? And similarly, we have marginal prices in wholesale markets. I want to drill into the comparison to pricing here because I think that will make it very clear to people as well. So yeah. some people have utility rates where they pay a single price for any hour of the day that they consume electricity. Whereas other folks have signed up for time of day or time of use pricing where their price varies depending on the time of day. So if demand is very high, let's say at at 4 p.m., their prices will go up, which incentivizes them to use less um, electricity unless they want to pay more than they otherwise would. So similarly with emissions on a marginal basis versus an average annual basis, you're actually getting that very granular view as to when the emissions are occurring and the location that they're occurring. Is that a good analogy for folks to use here for us? It is, and absolutely. But the only thing I would just add as a caveat is, you know, don't confuse the marginal versus the time granularity. You can have a marginal signal over, say, an annual year, which would be very, you know, simple for a small business to report on is take the annual consumption, multiply it by that marginal emission factor. So there is a slight difference, but absolutely, essentially, you want a signal that's telling you, if I'm adding load onto the grid, how much extra emissions is being created. Or another way to think about it from a renewables point of view is if there's a renewable project that's generating electricity, for every unit of electricity that's being generated, it's essentially pushing off a fossil fuel plant, right? And so there's an emissions avoidance because had that unit of electricity not been produced, there would have been a gas plant or something else that would have ramped up to meet that load. And so it's always comparing to a counterfactual, but essentially that's why the marginal framework works because you're looking at what's the incremental impact of an incremental action, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And we were talking about how do we get to this better place where we are measuring the marginal emissions of every megawatt hour consumed and produced and matching that with the consumption and supply accordingly. You were talking about data infrastructure. Tell us a little bit more about what data infrastructure may need to be in place and then about a transition period that we might need if any, to get there as well. Yeah, so with the data, I think there's a few things. Right? We want to get as granular as possible in terms of time and location. But as I said, we may have to just do that in stages, first cover geography and then going more granular by that. I think the key point is making sure that we've got a consensus on the operating signal, whether it's the marginal emission rate signal, is that actually the right signal that we're doing? Because you're trying to compare with what would have happened had that say, renewable electricity not been generating. And so for a grid operator, they should be, in my view, have a pretty good idea of that to make sure that there's consistency in those kind of calculations and data provision. So that's one thing on the data. I think in terms of the transition period, I think that there has to be 
some sort of transition period because we're creating now an extra method for organizations now who are trying to align themselves to this missions framework and there may be other organizations who are still continuing on. And so there has to be a recognition that different organizations are at different points in their journey and that by allowing scope for that ambition while not penalizing other organizations who are still in that journey. And so if we were to have this new data infrastructure in place and a appropriate transition period for people to access it and potentially act on it in alignment with previous commitments and new commitments they might make, how would this impact particularly corporate behavior? I think there's a few ways. A lot of focus has been on procurement, but also kind of the simplicity of this framework is that you're measuring both the consumption and the procured generation side. So there'd be incentive, for example, to shift load to cleaner times of day, right, for example, or, for example, enable clean electricity generation in the most emission-intensive regions of the grid. So you're maximizing emissions avoidance. That, that's something that right now I don't think is really being contemplated to the full extent. And if I go back to the objective of make sure that we're trying to maximize the decarbonization impact, I think it'd be very valuable to have that data to optimize those decisions. Because back to my point that we mentioned at the beginning, I think the problem is not decarbonization, but the rate of decarbonization. And given that organizations and individuals, we've got finite time, finite resources, we want to make sure that we're always having the biggest bang for the buck, essentially, right? And so we should give the right signals for the actions in the right times and the right locations, as well as also applying it to all technologies. So energy storage and batteries, for example, would be very useful in this context because you could charge when marginal good emission rates are low and then discharge when good emission rates are high. Climate Positive is produced by Hassi, a leading climate investment firm that actively partners with clients to deploy real assets that facilitate the energy transition. To learn more, please visit hassi.com. Folks out there may be familiar with what's called a 24-7 approach to addressing this issue. There are certain companies that have committed to sourcing all of their electricity consumed at a certain time and location with renewable resources that are roughly proximate to that area and to the shape of their consumption or load curve. You know, how does this approach that we're talking about that's more missionality-based, how does that either you know, have similarities with the 24-7 approach or differ? Or how should we think about that? Yeah, look, ultimately, everyone is trying to get to the same destination, a net zero grid. Right? And so if everyone in the grid had exactly matching load and supply with carbon-free electricity, then we essentially we reach the same destination point. I think the question is, right, how do we get there from where we are today? And I go back to my point in dimensions is, you know, historically, we've had dollars and megawatt hours and essentially now with an emissions-based framework, we're trying to add this third dimension of emissions. So the load matching or 24-7 framework, I view it as an extension of the current paradigm. There's nothing essentially wrong with that. But my viewpoint is that we want to try to be measuring the emissions impact of that. And just as a case study, back to the fundamental principle of this time and location, in that I think everyone instinctively understands the time dynamic when it comes to renewables, other sources, and trying to match this time dimension with 24-7. What's not perhaps immediately apparent is the location or the geography. And I often use the example of you may have some consumption or load in Houston, Texas. You may have a lot of wind project in West Texas. And even though you're exactly matched on a time basis, 
there is a location difference. And because there's a location difference, we also know the physical reality that there's also transmission constraint as well. And there has to be a, a gas plant that has to ramp up to serve that load of consumption in Houston. So even though you may be matched exactly well on, on 24-7 on the same grid, you're not actually at a net zero emissions footprint, right? And I think that's a nuance that's often lost, even when you're on the same grid, is that there is a difference between grid nodes on that same grid, and that does have real-world implications, which comes back to the point of we have better data now, and as we have that better data, we're able to now to measure emissions in a way that we couldn't perhaps 10 years ago. And so measuring the emission impact should then actually help us drive towards most optimal decisions. And so thankfully the various organizations that run the greenhouse gas protocol are in the process of soliciting feedback on how they can improve it. And I know, obviously, the Missions First Partnership, Amazon in general, HACI as well, many other corporates and various organizations have submitted comments on how the framework can be improved, especially with regard to scope two. Can you talk to us a little bit about what specifically should happen to the mechanics of how it's reported today and how it can be improved and how this process is playing out? So in terms of reporting today, there's two methods currently. There's the location-based method and market-based method. And this comes back to the discussion we're having around different emission factors. I'm sure now <laughs> there's a lot of people really now twitching their heads on emission factors and the talk around it. But the thing about the location-based method is it essentially just does not consider anything related to what you're contracting. It's taking your consumption, so on an annual basis, it's multiplying average good emission factor and you get your location-based method. So it's purely a function of where you're physically plugged in. The market-based method, as it were, is essentially looking at what you've contracted with. So Brendan, you were mentioning this before, we've got your consumption, your volume of that you've procured, say from a renewable energy project, it takes the, it subtracts the two, you get a remainder, and it's multiplied by what's called a residual emission factor, which is saying, hey, what's the emission factor of the grid when you take out the renewables, right? And so in the market-based method, it's essentially looking at what are you contracting? And so because of there's that volumetric piece, a lot of organizations are then able to then go and essentially procure electricity in an effort to reduce their scope two footprint. With this, essentially, you could add another method, an emissions-based method, which would be saying, actually, how do we actually begin to measure the emissions impact of both our consumption and our procured generation and see the net impact of that. So it has a, we measure what we call carbon count, which is the emissions reductions per dollar spent. And it sounds like what you're proposing in measuring emissions will effectively do that because you'll be able to see what the corporation, for every dollar they spend, they're hopefully will be investing in the most impactful emissions factor versus at least just a matching or the least impactful as maybe is happening today because of transmission constraints or things. So today, a dollar spent in a transition congested area doesn't have the same carbon benefit as a dollar spent in an area where there's higher emissions because of coal plants or whatever. And what you're proposing sounds like it will help you move to offsetting the higher emissions factors, whereas today, it's just whatever the lowest cost is. Is that a good way to think about it? Yeah, I think it goes back to the point that uh, I think Chad said as well, that every unit of electricity is not exactly the same. And we know that in Wyoming, there's a higher grid emission intensity. And so a clean unit of electricity there has a higher impact. So yeah, we're getting essentially getting better data of how do you get better impact from all of these actions and the renewable electricity or other actions that are being taken. And what that will lead to is essentially you're maximizing the 
impact per dollar spent, which is really what we're trying to get to because we're in a race against time. And so we have to accelerate the grid decarbonization. And if everyone was to essentially focus on those areas or, or times during the day when the grid was most emission intensive, that should be a more optimal way to drive out emissions. So if others are interested in the greenhouse gas protocol update process, I hope they are after this very in-depth discussion, how could they get involved? How could they learn more and or make their views heard? So there is a website, emissionsfirst.com. And in that, those principles are really clearly laid out. So I'd encourage everyone to read those. And then there is a contact us form as well. So please get in touch. We'd love to hear feedback on these thoughts, on these principles, around some of the concerns that people may have. Again, I think the intention is really a noble one, which is how do we actually give confidence that these emission reduction claims are accurate and impactful and accelerate the grid decarbonization while also allowing, I think, investment in areas of the world or in parts of the geographical areas that traditionally don't get investment. If you were to begin to measure emissions, can that incent capital markets to drive capital to where it's have the most biggest impact rather than where it's easy to transact? And that's applicable even in the U.S. as well, right? Because there are certain regions of the U.S. that tends to get more of the renewable investment. I think the thing that fascinates me, what I've heard about you guys, is you have data centers in places where you can't actually impact the grid. They don't allow you to. And it would be better to, in those areas, actually invest in the global south or something as a way to help the world. So I think we could talk about, look, out of the 31 gigawatts, 29 gigawatts of that's happening in Europe and North America. So why is it that those corporate off-take investments are not happening elsewhere? Partly it's because of the reasons that we described in terms of risk-reward, but partly it's because there's not an extra, essentially, emissions incentive, you know, and the Greenness Protocol essentially saying they should do where your consumption is. It's essentially creating it in those you know, particular regions. So if we were to try to treat this as a global problem, and loosen the constraints of market boundaries and allow then investment and offtake to where it could have the biggest impact, then corporates would have more incentive to, for example, do an offtake in a grid like India or Germany rather than a relatively clean grid like France, which is already very clean because of its nuclear fleet. So that, that could be something we can address. I think one of the things that's often confused is you can do an emissions-based framework at different levels. You don't need to release these constraints of market boundaries. It can work within a grid or within a location, or within a country, or globally. But the impact of loosening these constraints is that hopefully you should get capital, in my view, to where it can have the biggest impact. Or there should be more of an incentive because you're not just looking at dollars and megawatt hours, you've got an extra dimension of emissions. And even within the U.S. context, this is valuable because the most carbon-intensive parts of the U.S. grid are often in areas that are lower GDP per capita, like maybe parts of Kentucky or parts of Appalachia. Wyoming. Wyoming getting yeah. capital to parts of the middle of the country that otherwise wouldn't see that investment is not only good for the environment, but it's also good for local economies and job creation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll also note before we move to the hot seat that part of the reason this is also very important right now is that the SEC here in the U.S. is considering a final rule on how and whether publicly traded corporations should report their scope one, two, and, and maybe even three emissions. And if we don't get the reporting of scope two right along the lines of what we've discussed, mandating corporations to report the wrong thing 
could have you know negative consequences environmentally, especially for years to come. So it's important that we get this right now and, and that we encourage the SEC to as well. Awesome. Well, Faraz, thank you very much. Very substantive discussion. We're almost done here, but first the hot seat. So we ask for your immediate reactions to the following statements. The hardest decision I've ever made is... Uh, to emigrate. I've moved nine times in my career, maybe even more, but still, that was very hard. Mm. One thing I've changed my mind on is... The need for technologies beyond wind and solar. I would emphasize that this is my personal view and not that of any other organization. But I've just come to realize that you cannot achieve a net zero grid without firm, clean power. And that is going to require a range of solutions beyond wind and solar. This issue of the rate of change that I described is such that I struggle to see how we can decarbonize the power sector fast enough and expand the grid to the extent needed without the quantity of electricity coming from a set of technology solutions that will fill the need for firm power. But you don't regret leaving your first job. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny how you always have to look forward and you never quite realize how what you've done in the past can help you in the future. The person I've learned the most from is... I don't think there's a single person, but there are a few people throughout my career that I've learned a tremendous amount from. I think Brian Landrum, who's the CEO of an exterior retail I work for, I really admire his ability to balance the strategic with operational priorities. At GE, Tassos Raspoulos, who is my manager directly, he was just outstanding at building and developing teams, something I've really thought of as I've got older and thinking about how do you ensure that you get the most out of people. And Another leader who I really admire is Corey Nelson. He was working with me doing a startup venture at GE, Distributed Power, when we were trying to build solutions that could provide power at the point of use in emerging markets. And whenever you do a startup, there's always lots of assumptions and validating and trying to understand how you can build quickly and understand the problem. And there's something that you used to always say to me that's really stuck to me, which is like, get out of the building, which is like, basically, like you can do all the research and everything else, but you actually go out speak to people, travel there, go and actually see the problems and situations that you're actually dealing with. And that's something that's also stuck with me. Great lessons. When I need to recharge, I... I do my daily exercises. I do my reading. I kind of try to hang out with my kids. Nothing special, but I think that helps to me just get my mind onto that recharge focus. And as a parent of two kids, I want my kids to know... So really, I focused my career to preserve and enhance the environment and that I did everything possible to really contribute to provide the energy that the world needs. Really, I think that really is the one single theme throughout my whole career. You know, I've worked all across the energy sector, both broad and deep and emerging markets was developed markets. And it's really about how do you, you know, enhance the environment while at the same time providing the energy that society needs. You are a resident of Houston and I haven't spent much time there myself. So Houston's biggest hidden treasure is the restaurant scene. I was just shocked at the amount of food options available in Houston. My wife is a very big foodie. And I think there's a great restaurant scene, no matter what kind of cuisine you're into. On the climate tech side, I think Greentown Labs is a really important institution that I've been involved with. They're incubating a lot of entrepreneurial and angel investor and other activity. And that's really encouraging to see because I think traditionally VC has been really concentrated on the East and West Coast and developing that clean tech or climate tech entrepreneurial system in Houston has been really great to see. Amen to that. The most insightful book or article I've read recently is... 
So recently, I read a book called Superpower, One Man's Quest to Transform American Energy by Russell Gold. It really talks about the grid, which is a bit of a wonky thing to read about, but it really talks about all the challenges related to permitting and building grids. And it's just fascinating to hear the story of the challenges and the, all the different decision makers and ecosystem of people that have to be engaged during that process. So that's been really eye-opening for me. I think really very relevant as we try to decarbonize the grid because we need to continue to expand and try to debottleneck some of these constraints. So if you enjoyed this wonky podcast, you'll definitely enjoy this book. <laughs> and finally, to me, climate positive means... Really a holistic approach that means that we are leaving the planet and the environment better for the next generation. Excellent. Well, Faraz, this has been a great conversation. Thank you again for your time. Always great to chat with you. Likewise. Thank you so much, Chad. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Faraz. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. This really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.